Comey was spying on Trump. Well, the reason he was writing the memos was to create a record so that he could destroy No Trump. American knowingly colluded with the Russians to interfere in our election campaigns. Oh wait, unless you mean Hillary Clinton. Pardons, prosecutions, and transparency. You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hey, everyone. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update on social media. Thanks for joining us this week. We have a very, very, very busy week, not only at Judicial Watch, but generally here in D.C. Uh, related to corruption issues. We've had our first Durham prosecution or plea agreement. I'll talk about that. We had uh, disappointing news in the Hillary Clinton email case. I got some news on that. Plus, we have new lawsuits uh, about some uh, interesting police issues in Montgomery County. There was a shooting of a young man, a killing, and we're trying to get the body cam videos. Uh, so we've got something going on on that. Uh, of course, Joe Biden has Kamala Harris as his vice presidential nominee. Uh, she was picked this week. A big controversy because I dared to retweet a question about her eligibility. So we'll talk about that. And plus, we sued the D.C. government to um, uh, find out more about its um, painting of the Black Lives Matter uh, message and defund police message on the street. As you know, we're also suing to gain access to that First Amendment forum as well. So I'll talk about that. So I, could, I guess I could do an entire segment talking about what we're going to talk about. So let's get right into it. First up is the big news of the week, I think the most significant development, which is the filing of a criminal information complaint or criminal information document uh, uh, concerning Kevin Kleinsmith, who's a, a former attorney, I think he's a former attorney at the FBI, who uh, criminally altered a document, and evidently he's going to be pleading guilty. As I suggested to you last week or in the last prior, some prior updates, I've been talking about this repeatedly, is that the Klein-Smith prosecution was not unexpected by Mr. Durham. He was referred to uh, the Justice Department for prosecution by the Inspector General. So this is what happened. Uh, the, uh, remember, there were four applications, the first application and then the renewal applications to spy on Carter Page. And in those applications, uh, they had, um, at least in two of them, they had known that the FBI, and according to this document, that the FBI knew, the um, the Crossfire Hurricane team knew that Carter Page was working with the CIA, that he was a source for the CIA. And uh, they didn't tell the court that. So there were at least two applications where they didn't tell the court that. And then the fourth application, just before it was filed, Kevin Kleinsmith followed up with the CIA on specifics about this issue because Carter Page went public with the fact he worked for the CIA. So you can imagine they all went crazy over there at the FBI, uh, the anti-Trump gang there at the FBI and the Mueller operation. And so uh, the CIA, according to this document that's been filed, sent a note back saying, yeah, he's, he's an operational contact and we, we already sent you a memo on this and they reconfirmed it. Well, what Kleinsmith did is he forwarded it to his colleague who was setting up the application and added the words, he's not a CIA source, which is a crime. It's a false statement crime, according to Durham, and he's going to plead guilty to it. 
he could face up to five years in jail potentially. So it's a big deal in the sense that we have the first confirmation that a crime was committed in Obamagate, a federal crime. There was a crime committed in order to spy on Donald Trump. And I know it's Carter Page, the FISA warrant, but it was about getting Donald Trump. Now this Kevin Kleinsmith was an anti-Trumper. He talks about being part of the resistance, viva the resistance in one of his text messages that was withheld from the American people for years and Congress too. So um, this, this prosecution by Durham is overdue. It's obviously necessary, but as you might imagine, I don't think it's sufficient. So the big question is, will it be follow-up? Already the liberal media is spinning, it, spinning this as, well, this is just this one guy who did something wrong. It's not part of an anti-Trump conspiracy. I look at this, and of course, you, we all know what else happened. So that's just telling us to forget, uh, drop all that into the memory hole. Uh, that um, we all know that there were others involved in this misconduct. It goes all the way to the top, Barack Obama. Joe Biden was in on the, one of the meetings in the Oval Office, that key meeting. And the question is, are there going to be additional prosecutions? When I, lo I looked at the filing, it was kind of narrowly drawn. Uh, the one key paragraph I talked about uh, references the, um, let me get it here on my phone if I can bring it up, that the Crossfire Hurricane team also knew and withheld material information from the courts. Of course, the FISA court hasn't done anything about it. They've yelled about it, but they haven't held anyone in contempt or sought criminal proceedings, criminal contempt proceedings that the court is able to do. So we don't know what else is going to happen, but um, the Klein-Smith prosecution or plea agreement is no surprise. I've been convinced that was going to be the case. And I've seen, again, no evidence that anyone senior in the Obama gang or the deep state operation against President Trump is going to be prosecuted. Certainly there's nothing here suggesting that they're going to be prosecuted. So this is good news for justice. And, um, you know, and putting the, and I don't want to underplay it. I also don't want to overplay it, but not underplaying means it shows you that there were crime, there was a crime committed in targeting Trump. So the question I have is what other crimes were committed? And I think we should presume every prosecution related to Trump was um, tainted by this bias, by this criminal activity. You should presume that. And if you presume that, what do you do? Obviously, you do criminal investigations and you question everyone and you don't tell some people, don't let some people be immune from questioning like Barr is letting Mr. Obama and Vice President Biden be immune from questioning. But if you're the president, maybe you pardon everyone. Pardon everyone caught up in the Mueller team, by, by the Mueller prosecutions and the subsequent prosecutions. Even folks who may have done something wrong, because I don't know, you know, who knows what was done in terms of the misconduct. I don't have any confidence in the fair administration of justice when it came uh, comes to targeting anyone in Trump world. And I think nor can the president. And if that's the case, everyone should be pardoned. I mean, we had this week uh, this big hearing, this en banc hearing, which is when the folk, full circuit Court of Appeals sat and heard uh, General Flynn's mandamus petition, which is an extraordinary remedy, as I'll talk about later. 
to overturn the judicial adventurism against him by Judge Sullivan? I mean, it's pretty clear the judges are going to let Judge Sullivan do more victimization of General Flynn. I don't know how much more. I mean, some of those judges on that court, I've, I've, I've listened to appellate decisions. As a non-lawyer, I've probably been in <laughs> more appellate arguments or sat through them than pretty much any layperson out there, <laughs> certainly here in Washington, D.C., other than you know reporters who cover this for a living. And um, I've never heard judges as impolite, aggressive, political as I heard in that argument. Sidney Powell did a good job. The lawyer for the government, Mr. Wall, did a good job because he's. Uh, they said that uh, Judge Sullivan has no business doing this as well. Now, in the end, you know, Judge Judge Sullivan may get pushed back, but I don't know. I don't know. It's, I I wouldn't take any solace. If I were General Flynn for the way that hearing went. And this is why the president should pardon General Flynn. And I know some of you say, oh, no, he should be exonerated. Well, he's never really going to be exonerated. I mean, the case may be dismissed. Do you think the Obama gang is going to stop going after him? Stop harassing him? And what other victimization will Judge Sullivan or any other court put him through? He should be pardoned. And he should not only be pardoned, not for him personally, which is obviously important because of the miscarriage of justice against him and the abuse of a government authority against him. But remember, the targeting of General Flynn was about targeting President, uh, excuse me, the targeting of General Flynn was about targeting President Trump. So this was an attack on the presidency, the attack on the ability of the president to conduct foreign policy, which is his, one of his core constitutional powers. I mean, when you look at the courts talk about the presidential powers and how important it is, how important they are, and how, how much they should be respected, they say the presidential powers, and I'm, I'm probably misquoting it, but they say that they're at, its, they're at apex when it comes to foreign policy. That's how much deference the president has, and that's how much important, constitutionally speaking, the president's role is. And this, this gang, this Obama, this president, this Comey, they targeted that core constitutional function. And that's why I call it a malicious, seditious conspiracy. And that's why I think the president should pardon him. And certainly this criminal development. Remember, Obamagate is now officially a crime. We had an FBI lawyer who was instrumental in the spying, the illicit spying on the president of the United States and his team admit to committing a crime to get it done. And frankly, there are a whole lot of others who probably knew about it as well, but I don't know if they're going to be prosecuted or not. As I said, I'm not confident. So what can we expect next? I don't know. You know, Attorney General Barr has, has made it clear that just because it looks bad doesn't mean it's a crime, which is true technically. But if you're not investigating and questioning witnesses, I don't know how you can figure that out one way or another. And I'm not seeing the investigation that I think ought to be pursued by Durham. Certainly, the president seems to share my concerns. He's concerned they'll go after the low-hanging fruit and let the upper-level people get away with it. Certainly, there's precedent for that, mis that sort of uh, miscarriage of justice. 
And he said the president, you know, that Barr can either be, you know, the greatest attorney general in history or an average guy. And the implication being if he doesn't pursue justice adequately against those truly responsible at the top levels at the FBI, Justice Department, and Obama administration, that he will have caved. So we'll see what happens. Uh, in the meantime, Judicial Watch will continue its litigation. And this is what I love about Judicial Watch. I, you know, we appreciate the Justice Department needs to do its job. And one of the reasons it's doing anything is because of Judicial Watch's pressure. Because we make it more difficult for them to avoid doing their job. Not that they're incapable of doing it, but at least it's tougher for them to do it. We're getting documents that Congress doesn't get that otherwise would be hidden. And Judicial Watch is continuing to get documents. And so who needs an IG when you have Judicial Watch? And uh, so those of you who support Judicial Watch, I think you can take credit for this prosecution because I don't think it would have happened but for our diligence. And you know, to be fair, the diligence of others who have been highlighting this issue from the get-go. But I dare say it that Judicial Watch was first in highlighting the corruption behind the targeting of Mueller, uh, the targeting of Trump. And it's resulted ultimately in this prosecution. And I, and I, and I thank U.S. Attorney Durham for getting it done. I thank Attorney General Barr for getting it done. But I hope this is just the beginning because if it's not, there'll be no justice. So uh, speaking of no justice, we had some bad news out of the uh, circuit court today. Uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals granted Hillary Clinton's mandamus and is now preventing her, her their order prevents her from being deposed by Judicial Watch in person. So now she doesn't have to testify under oath and in person to the Judicial Watch as ordered by federal court about her emails and Benghazi attack records. Now, you may recall, I thought things would not go well after the appellate court hearing. The judges were very skeptical of this issue. And, uh, you know, I went through the decision. Uh, we're obviously disappointed. Our lawyers are analyzing the decision and trying to figure out what our options are and what should we do next. Obviously, the options are, A, we can do nothing. We can appeal to the full back panel, the full uh, circuit, which would be an en banc uh, panel, or we could go straight potentially to the Supreme Court. So I don't, I'm not sure what, if anything, we're going to do. But I do know this decision seems political. Hillary Clinton is getting special treatment from the court. Uh, the judge who wrote the case wanted to protect Judge Sullivan from a mandamus petition by General Flynn, but is giving Hillary Clinton unprecedented protection along with two other judges, to be fair, from being questioned in discovery. And let's go back to what went on here. She took, she, she conducted all of her government business on a private email system that was hidden from the American people, hidden from Judicial Watch, hidden from the court. State Department knew what was going on. She's the head of the agency. So as the head of the agency, she knew what was going on. And if she knows what's going on, that means the agency knows what's going on. And rather than tell us about it when we do a FOIA request and lawsuit about it, in this case tied to Benghazi, they don't tell us about it and try to get us to shut the court case down and try to get the court to shut it down. And needless to say, the court's upset. He wants to know why he was being gamed. 
and she takes her emails, steals them in my view, deletes half of them, otherwise hides them, and we're all supposed to be happy with that. As Judge Sullivan said, the reason we're here is because of Mrs. Clinton. That one government employee, I think the language was he used. And to see the, this appellate court give her, once again, special treatment is just beyond the pale. It undermines confidence in the, again, in the judiciary, the fair administration of justice. I mean, compare and contrast the agony I described with the appellate court, the full court, being hesitant to grant a mandamus against General Flynn, who in unprecedented fashion is having a motion to dismiss his criminal charges denied. Never happened before in American history, practically speaking. And in this case, Hillary Clinton, it's just, there's a simple deposition issue. And she's given, the court has essentially ruled she has an indisputable right to the relief she got. Indisputable. For me to describe it shows you how difficult it is and how extraordinary that type of relief is. So it's terribly disappointing. I mean, I guess it's not surprising, but it's still disappointing because, you know, I don't know about you. I think the judges still need to do the right thing, even when it's hard. And so when I see judges do the wrong thing, it's disappointing. I know that's why the cookie crumbles sometimes, but you know, it's, it's still not acceptable. And what's equally, if not more outrageous, is to see the obstruction and efforts by the State Department and the Justice Department under the Trump administration being used against us. Throughout this decision, they say the State Department did this, and you know they were fighting us tooth and nail. And all those arguments that they were throwing out at us, and sometimes getting the courts to agree with, were, was, were used against us to stop Hillary Clinton's testimony. I tell you what, President Trump should ask Secretary Pompeo and Attorney General Barr what the heck they're doing that they were protecting Hillary Clinton like this. To me, it's a it's a real it's a terrible betrayal of those who thought uh, that uh, President Trump's appointees would be doing the right thing here because they haven't. I generally like Attorney General Barr, but on this, he's been AWOL. Secretary Pompeo, they, they've known about these gamesmanship that his agencies played. They're still defending her. To this day, Justice Department attorneys are colluding with Hillary Clinton's attorneys. To this day. Now, I know it's probably frustrating to you, and it's probably not surprising to you that she won't get, she won't testify, at least as of now. And you think, well, that, you know, it's frustrating she hasn't been held accountable. First of all, the statute of limitations hasn't passed. So I think you should let the White House know what you think about that. Let the Attorney General know what you think about that. Why aren't they prosecuting her over this? It was obviously the last time they looked at this issue, it was corrupted. The same gang that's now been implicated in crimes today, they were looking at Hillary Clinton. And of course, she's not president of the United States, and it's because of this email scandal. We didn't do it to make sure she wasn't president, but the consequence of our uncovering it is 
that she isn't president. So there's been rough justice, but specifically here, there was a miscarriage of justice. So I'll let you know what we do on this case as, as uh, time progresses, but um, I, don't, I don't know how much time we have to figure out whether we're going to appeal it or how we're going to appeal it, uh, but we're analyzing it carefully. So um, what else is going on? Oh, well, the president of, uh, excuse me, Vice President Biden picked Kamala Harris as his vice presidential running mate. Now, Judicial Watch, I'm not telling you to vote for or against any candidate. Uh, I don't have any direct interaction with her other than I was at these Kavanaugh hearings, those outrageous hearings, especially the second set where he was uh, viciously smeared and knowingly lied about, defamed and slandered by senators and, those, and that witness against him. And I remember Senator Harris and um, the other Democratic senators, the leftist senators, as, as Kavanaugh is being emotionally torn apart, he and his family being victimized, they were sitting there smearing, uh, uh, sneering, smirking, half smiles on their face the entire time. I mean, they enjoyed the abuse of Justice Kavanaugh or then Judge Kavanaugh. Now, uh, Judicial Watch has Freedom of Information Act requests about uh, Kamala Harris's activities while she was in California. So if anything interesting comes from that, I'll let you know. But I thought what was really interesting is that uh, John Eastman, who's a great constitutional law expert, great professor, had a piece in Newsweek, of all places. Newsweek, no friends of conservatives there. It was an op-ed. And the title of the op-ed is some questions about Kamala Harris's, some questions for Kamala Harris about eligibility. And it was an opinion piece. And it raised the question about whether Harris is eligible to be vice president under the citizenship clause of the constitution. Essentially, you can't run for vice president unless you're eligible to be president. And in order to be president, you have to be a natural born citizen. And the 14th Amendment decide, uh, defines natural born citizen as someone who is uh, not only born here in the territory of the United States, but also subject to the jurisdiction thereof. So there was a Supreme Court decision um, last century or so uh, that suggested that permanent resident aliens, the children of permanent resident aliens are citizens automatically by virtue of being born here. Uh, and uh, John Eastman looked at the law, looked at the history of how that law has been interpreted, how the Constitution is interpreted, and he suggested that because Harris's parents were here perhaps temporarily as on student visas, they weren't subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, and therefore Harris is not eligible to be president, and therefore can't be vice president. Now, I don't know if he's correct on that. I think it's a more substantial issue than the left would have you believe. So I tweeted out a question <laughs> with a link to the article saying, is she eligible under the citizenship clause to be vice president? And um, uh, a, a lawyer close to President Trump, uh, Jenna Ellis, retweeted it, and the president was asked about it. So now the left has gone crazy saying it's false, and you can't even ask the question. You're a racist, which is absurd, because similar questions were asked about John McCain and Ted Cruz. I mean, I remember talking to reporters back in the day when 
this Obama birth certificate issue was floating around. And I thought there were more substantial questions about McCain's eligibility than Barack Obama's. So this has nothing to do with race. It just has something to do with the Constitution. And the left hates the idea that there'd be any difference between citizens and non-citizens. So any constitutional questions around this, they go crazy about. So I don't know what the answer is. And, you know, it could be argued, for instance, that uh, being lawfully here is enough to subject you to the jurisdiction of the United States under the law. I mean, for instance, a dip, you know, the typical argument in this famous Supreme Court decision is that it highlights that diplomats, their children born here, aren't citizens. So the question arises, is someone here illegally? Are their children born here? Are they citizens? Would an invading army that was sired children, would their children be citizens if the mother and father were part of the invasion? Or as John Eastman suggests, would students here temporarily, not permanent residents at the time, are they subject to the jurisdiction of the United States? What does that phrase mean? Why is it there? Is it just meaningless? Obviously it's not meaningless. And so the debate about that, I guess, is not something we're allowed to have. Now, I don't know if anyone would have standing to, I haven't thought about it like this yet, challenge her eligibility. Although I suppose the Senate or Congress could uh, ultimately decide on her eligibility if the election, when the election moves there through the Electoral College and the certification of votes for her as vice president, if, if, they were, if, if Biden and Kamala Harris were to win. So I encourage you to look at the Eastman piece. I don't know, what, what do you think? Maybe he's all wet. I, I know I'm friendly with him. I think he's a great guy, smart lawyer. He's an expert. So whenever you hear the media say the experts say it's wrong, that's not true. I'm an expert. They hate to admit it, but I'm an expert. Judicial Watch is an expert. John Eastman's an expert. So you can be sure there are experts who are raising questions about her eligibility. I don't know. I think she, she might be eligible. I think it's a close call. I don't know if it can be adjudicated, but it's a close call. And um, so when you, hear they, when you hear reporters say that it's a, quote, false and racist, that's just politics. That's just silliness. It's absurd. It's a dispute. Now, the left is right in that if the law generally is allowed anyone born here to be termed a citizen. Question Eastman says is, practically speaking, that may have been the case, but is that what the law and the constitution requires? And he's suggesting no. He's suggesting no. So it's a, a piece well worth reviewing. So um, there's a lot to go, go through here. I'm gonna talk about the elections briefly because the president gave a shout out to Judicial Watch, actually two of them, uh, one on Maria Barolomo's show uh, uh, yesterday and also during a press conference about our work in California where we settled a election rolls cleanup case with LA County and the state of California that requires LA County to remove up to 1.6 million names from the rolls. And the president highlights that work as uh, support for his concern about mail-in ballots, which is, I think, a concern well worth um, uh, 
that is well-placed, I should say, well-founded. Did you know, by the way, and this is the number that we ought to focus on. Let me click it up here. The number used to be 43. Within the last week, it's gone up to 52 million Americans are automatically going to get a, a, a ballot, whether they ask for it or not. They moved away, dead, doesn't matter. They're going to get the ballot. 52 million. 44 million Americans are getting absentee ballot applications without asking for them. So let's see, that's 52, 44, 96 million Americans are going to be getting ballots or absentee ballot applications. Obviously, that's an opportunity for fraud of enormous proportions, especially when you combine that with ballot harvesting in states like California and the lack of security measures in mail-in balloting, the dirty voting rolls that Judicial Watch has uncovered and not only in California, but elsewhere in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, we found nearly 2 million extra names on the rolls, just in those two states alone. And of course, the left is still trying to undermine election security in, in Rhode Island. Uh, they had uh, absentee ballot requirements, I think that required the signature of two witnesses. Well, the left undid that, and the Supreme Court let it go by. So now it will be easier to steal votes and steal elections in Rhode Island. And now the postal off the post office is admitting what I've been telling you that their mails aren't reliable and they can't be sure that they'll get the ballots in the polling place in time. Now the response of the left is to pretend, oh, we have to get the post office more money to make sure it happens. It ain't gonna happen. They can have all the money in the world. They can't certify that your ballots will get to the polling place on time. They can't certify your ballots will get there at all. And certainly if you hand them to ballot harvesters, that would be a misjudgment on your part, frankly. I mean, some states allow them to, you know, if it's, you know, you want to give something to your husband to deliver a mail-in ballot or an absentee ballot, that's appropriate, a close family member or something like that giving your ballot to a stranger to deliver on your behalf like they are able to do in California? Huh. So I suspect chaos on election day and beyond. It's not gonna be election day, it's gonna be election months. As I said, it can go into the Congress if it's not, if it's not figured out. As I talked to you about, I think I talked to you about, there, there was this left-wing planning project. They were wargaming out these scenarios about post-election fights. And of course, you know, they had this, uh, you know, these ridiculous uh, ideas about what President Trump was going to do, you know, his uh, take over the country with the military, which is just absurd. But the leftist war game, the Biden war game, run by John, uh, uh, top Democratic operative John Podesta, They're talking about having states threaten to secede from the union in order to get Biden installed as president. That's what they were willing to do in their war games. The left was. And they talk about it being a street fight and we have to can't rely on the norms, meaning the rule of law. It's a dangerous time because of the threats of the left 
currently in the cities where you have the threats of violence and the willingness of the left to upend the rule of law if the election result is seemingly what they don't want. And Judicial Watch has been analyzing this and seeing what legal steps we can take. Obviously, we're already in court trying to clean up the roles. Justice Department is completely AWOL on all of this. I mean, Attorney General Barr gets it. He was on Hannity and he talked about California. He said he had friends from, I guess, who used to live in California, hadn't lived there in 21 years getting ballots. Now, supposedly the ballots aren't going to be mailed to, quote, inactive voters. But the point is, if you've got a million and a half inactive voters in L.A. County alone, that suggests the other part of the list is dirty, too. Don't you think? The president is understating the threat to free and fair elections caused by swapping the mails with 100 nearly 100 million ballots and ballot applications that no one's asked for. So you'll have increased voter fraud for sure. You'll have ballot harvesting with increased voter intimidation for sure. And you're gonna have ballots thrown out. In 2016, 319,000 absentee mail ballots were thrown out. Uh, we don't have any way of guessing how many would be thrown out this time around because there's no precedent for what's being planned here, which is to break the system. The system is going to break. And we, pre and, and we really uh, appreciate the president's shout out for our work. And the fact that we're virtually the only ones doing anything on this tells you everything you need to know. Now the Republicans are suing sometimes successfully, sometimes not, to try to stop illegal changes. But remember, Republicans have tech, you know, they, they've got to encourage people to vote by mail too. They can't, they're not going to cede that to just the other political party. So that's why you need an independent group like Judicial Watch saying, the best way to make sure your vote is counted is to vote in person. Voting by mail is a bad public policy. Absentee ballots without really having a strong basis to use them is a bad policy. Unsecured absentee ballots is a bad policy. So Republicans have to say they may not like them, but they have to encourage voters who'd like to vote by the mail to use it anyway. And of course, many of these states have no voter ID California doesn't have voter ID. 15 big states don't have voter ID, as I've told you before. Only 10 or 11 states have strict voter ID laws, and the rest of the states have voter ID laws, but they're not as strict as they could be. So it's going to be it's going to be a mess. Uh, and but Judicial Watch is doing again the heavy lifting to try to make sure your votes are counted and the elections are as clean as possible. So we've been super busy in the courts as well. I've told you about the Hillary Clinton case. Um, there are several lawsuits I want to tell you about. Uh, as I've told you at the beginning, uh, Judicial Watch sued the D.C. government for documents on the Black Lives Matter painting. They allowed, well, they literally painted near the White House, and they also allowed to be painted defund the police right next to it. And Judicial Watch saw that and said, well, can we get access to the streets too? We want to paint our message. Our message is because no one is above the law. 
but instead the DC mayor uh, wants to privilege her political speech and the political speech of her allies and defund the police movement and suppress ours. So we sued. So we got that one lawsuit, but we also said, well, let's find out what they're really doing here. Let's get the documents. How much did this cost? Tell us what was going on in the back and forth here. And we haven't gotten Jack. In fact, there were 1,616 documents they found, or pages, and they withheld 615 of them. <laughs> How's that for transparency? So we've got several FOIA requests that are just completely being ignored. Mayor Bowser is playing games with the First Amendment, and the D.C. government is now hiding documents on using tax dollars to paint political messages on D.C. streets. The first Judicial Watch didn't allow judicial, you know, first the mayor didn't allow Judicial Watch to paint our message, and now we're facing a cover-up about it. And it's not obviously here in D.C. I'm sure in your, I'm sure in many of you, have, uh, there's a local version of this story going on. I know it's happening in New York. We, we asked for permission to paint New York. I haven't heard from them yet. I don't know if we're going to sue or not. But I'm tired, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of these local politicians, these leftist politicians, suppressing our free speech rights. And so we're in court about it. But what else can we do? We're not the left, we're not gonna burn down buildings and threaten and try to kill police officers. That's what the left does. Judicial Watch relies on the rule of law to hold government accountable. We're not communist revolutionaries. Another reason to love Judicial Watch, don't you think? So what else? So there's another local lawsuit we filed. There was this shooting back in March of a man, young man named Duncan Lemp, Lemp and L-E-M-P, he's 21 years old. And uh, there was an execution of a no-knock search warrant in, uh, in the middle of the night in March. And uh, the police went in and essentially Lemp got killed by the police. So we want the body cam videos of that incident because the police say, uh, well, well, the family says that Lemp and his family were asleep when quote, police besieged the residents from the front of the house and the family was awakened by shots fired through Duncan's bedroom window, followed by the sound of flashbangs. According to the family's attorney, and I witnessed that Lemp was asleep in his bedroom when police opened fire from outside the house. That would be horrible if it happened that way, don't you agree? Now, supposedly the reason they went over there is because um, there was a search warrant related to guns that he had uh, that he may not have been allowed to have given his prior record as a young person. Now, the police dispute that report. The local police said in a statement that the SWAT team officers were acting on an anonymous tip that Lemp was in possession of firearms that he was prohibited from having due to his criminal activity as a juvenile. As I said, the, uh, the police maintained upon making contact with Lemp, officers identified themselves as the police and gave Lemp multiple orders to show his hands and comply with the officer's commands to get on the ground. It also reportedly maintains that Lemp, the statement maintains that Lemp refused to comply and proceeded towards an interior bedroom where other officers were located. I don't think anyone disputes he was shot. So there's obviously a dispute about what went on. And the question is, can the body cam cameras resolve the dispute? And is there, are there body cam camera videos? And I don't know that. 
And we don't know that because of the gamesmanship going on by Montgomery County here. Now, this is a case you haven't heard much about. Why? Because Lemp is believed to be a right-wing guy, a militia type. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what the media says. He's also white. So there's been less press interest in this type of shooting. Now compare and contrast that with the, the woman who was shot, the former girlfriend of the alleged drug dealer whose apartment was raided and she was shot after her then boyfriend shot at the police. And there's a big dispute about that case. And it's a big cause celebra for the left. I don't think there are any body cams for that case. So now it's, you know, so I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I know it's being investigated by the FBI. I don't think this case is being investigated by the FBI. And I'm not suggesting the police did anything wrong in either circumstance. But it seems to me it ought to be a straightforward issue to release body cam videos. It's been months. I mean, I can see waiting to review them before you release them so you aren't giving, um, aren't interfering with the, the uh, criminal investigation. But what's the purpose of having body cam videos if you're not going to release them? Because the purpose is for government accountability and police accountability. I mean, I know in the George Floyd, Floyd case, they weren't being released publicly. They were leaked. Portions of them were leaked. And you can pretty much see why they weren't released, by at least by the prosecutions, because they certainly were no help to the prosecution. And they mean that the prosecution's case was over, but certainly they were helped the defense. So this is gamesmanship that goes on with these police videos. And you know, our view is the more transparency, the better. Uh, you protect the privacy of people and that, that process should be followed. Uh, but um, in a case where someone gets killed, you know, it ought to be the ordinary course to release uh, body cam videos with appropriate redactions. And that's why, again, judicial watches in court. We just don't talk about these issues. We actually ask and pursue and investigate them separately. In the George Floyd case, you know, we've asked for the records under FOIA. We haven't gotten them. I don't know if we're going to sue or not, though. And, of course, withholding public information about a police shooting undermines confidence in law enforcement. Frustrating times we live in, isn't it, folks? Frustrating times. Well, speaking of undermining confidence in law enforcement, you've got this radical left defund the police movement, which would really just end policing, as you know it, and replace it with uh, ideological enforcers, making sure you're wearing masks and not offending anyone in politically correct groups. I mean, it's essentially a, a communist revolutionary concept. Sure enough, in LA, they're cutting the police or there's a proposal to cut the police. So um, there have been reports that the mayor has a Los Angeles Police Department security detail, which sounds appropriate. Although maybe citizens of LA may think it's uh, bunk that the mayor gets security like he's the president of the United States, but he does get security and that security for the that police security travels with him when he goes abroad and he's gone abroad and we found the document showing that he went to the following international locations paris auckland new zealand beijing rio 
Dohar, Qatar, Mexico City, Denmark, Berlin, Switzerland, Peru, and again, Paris. He had two trips to Paris. It's funny, I was on the radio the other day and I, I told the guy, I said, I've never been to Paris. You get to go to Paris? And then I realized I had been to Paris, but it was so long ago I forgot. So I guess I'm getting, getting too old here. But I didn't have government security with me. And I'm not begrudging the mayor having security when he travels. I question the propriety of the travel, given the fact he's only a mayor, but that's another question. So they're planning to cut $250 million from the police. So as they make it harder for citizens to be safe, they have the LAPD providing security protection to the mayor. And you can bet that's not going to be cut. So we thought it was interesting to uh, put this, uh, to a, figure out what, how the mayor is personally benefiting as mayor from the police protection, delineating the costs so that Americans and LA County residents can figure out and better evaluate the rhetoric and decision-making and the anti-police activities by the mayor and his leftist colleagues that are trying to decimate police funding in the mayor. I mean, that the mayor uh, in, in LA, that the mayor would defund the police and while weakening and weaken police protection for citizens while personally benefiting from police protection on his junkets abroad is just too rich, isn't it? Well, let's, and I, this is, again, this is why I love Judicial Watch, this basic investigative work. You know, LA Times had reported the summary total of these travel costs, $450,000 previously, but we got the documents and got all these other details that hadn't been previously reported. So great job for our investigative team. You know, and, and let me just take a pause here. We got lawyers, we got investigators, we got our media people, we got our fundraisers, we have an administrative team. All of they, all, they all make our work possible. And obviously you make our work possible with our, your support. But my point being, I come on and I talk about the great work our team is doing. You know, it's not just me. I guess I'm stuck in my house here. But we got a team, crack, the best, the best team in the world when it comes to investigating government corruption. The best team in the world. And I'm proud of them. And you should be too. And it's an honor to be helping lead them. So along those lines, our team uncovered how Hunter Biden traveled with the Secret Service protection while his father was vice president for several, uh, uh, for hundreds of trips, including 29 trips abroad, um, and a trip to Moscow, which is interesting, according to John Solomon, because there may be something there that's worth pursuing, and five trips to China. So we already uncovered that, but those documents that we had gotten from the Secret Service detailing those trips were only a partial response because uh, essentially the last half of uh, the last two and a half years of the Obama administration weren't covered. So we wanted more details about the trips themselves and where else he went with Secret Service protection while his father was vice president. And of course, all this is of concern because of the Biden's family uh, penchant for seemingly turning the vice president's office into a vehicle for self uh, personal wealth uh, increasing. 
I'm putting it nicely. Basically, they turned it into a racket, both with Burisma and in China, with that sweetheart franchise that um, the Biden gang got uh, on one of the trips that we uncovered here. And so uh, we asked for the records. We're getting stonewalled for a relatively simple request. So we're in federal court suing because we think we have a right to know about what the vice president's son was doing and how much secret service and what the secret service our taxpayer resources were being used to allow him to do. That doesn't mean he doesn't have a right to travel. I mean, you don't, you don't check your right to earn a living when your president, when your, if your family member rejoins the uh, government. But when there's seeming conflicts of interest here that raise legal issues, you got to be on the alert that someone isn't trying to give you special favors and special treatment and money for doing nothing, kind of like what he got in Burisma, it looks like, in order to, to uh, curry favor with your family member, in this case, the president's, the vice president. DOJ doesn't seem to be investigating this. Congress isn't, Congress is doing a little investigating of it. Ron Johnson and senators trying to investigate it. And for that, he's being smeared by Adam Schiff and company, calling him a Russian agent because he's asking about what the heck was going on with the Bidens in Ukraine. I mean, they're still doing it. The coup hasn't stopped. So uh, Judicial Watch uh, has a, a new federal lawsuit on Hunter Biden. And this is on top of our lawsuit in Delaware for Senator Biden's or Vice President, well, then Senator Biden's records that are housed in the University of Delaware using tax dollars. So we think we have a right to access them. We're working with the Daily Caller on that lawsuit. So the media just wants to, you know, pretend that Joe Biden has no, there's no reason to investigate what Joe Biden did. I mean, Judicial Watch has dozens of lawsuits against the Trump administration about what the Trump administration is up to. And we're not going to let Joe Biden be immune from scrutiny. So we at least have, we have at least a half a dozen lawsuits now. No one else is doing anything like that. So we expect more documents to start coming. And uh, once again, Judicial Watch is doing the heavy lifting on behalf of you, the American people. So I think I want to be sure I'm covering everything that we've been doing. Well, that was quite the update, wasn't it? Well, I appreciate your support for our work. Uh, I'll let you know what we're gonna do about Hillary Clinton. Let's hope that Durham does the right thing. Don't expect much, but you can always, as I said, be sure that Judicial Watch will continue uh, to push for transparency, accountability, and integrity in government politics and the law. Thank you, and I'll see you next week here on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate. <laughs>